Two explorers were in a jungle when suddenly a ferocious lion jumped out in front of them. And the first explorer turned to the second explorer and whispered, Remember that book that we read on wild animals? If you stand perfectly still and look the lion in the eye, he will turn and run away. Sure, said his companion, you've read the book, and I've read the book, but has the lion read the book? And today we begin a series on a new book, a book that is really important that all of us read, because in fact it's written, if you like, by a lion, by a lion of Judah. It begins in verse 1 where it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the golden lampstands. Who is the one that holds the seven stars in his right hand? Who is the one that walks among the golden lampstands? Well, as always in the Bible, when we read the Bible, we always need to read things in context. We need to turn to chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. And there it's made quite clear who that person is. Revelation chapter 1 and verses 12 to 18. I'm not going to read all of it, but there it says, John says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet, as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me, and he said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look. I am alive forever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. So who is that? Who is that? Jesus. He's the only one who's conquered death, who holds the keys to death and Hades. He's the only one who's alive forever. The one who's the one like the Son of Man, as we've come from Daniel and see that's the title we use throughout the Gospels. It is Jesus who's speaking. And this book is critical for our lives because it is Jesus speaking to his church. And we begin a series this this week, a mini-series of seven, looking at the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. The seven letters that were given to, to, the, to the Apostle John when he was in exile on the Isle of Patmos in the Revelation of John, called the Apocalypse or Revelations, as we call it in our modern Bibles. And this is a critical, a critical book to read and understand because Jesus is writing to the churches. Not just the churches of the first century, the churches of the 21st century. And he's writing to you brother and sister. He's writing to me. This is a message from Jesus to you and to me, as relevant to the modern church as it was in the first century church of Asia Minor. So the first question we have this morning is this, why to the church in Ephesus? Why Ephesus? It's because Ephesus was the most important church 
in Asia Minor. It was the most important city. It's interesting to note that it wasn't the capital of the region. That privilege fell to Pergamon. But Ephesus surpassed all the other cities in Asia Minor because it was the greatest commercial centre in that part of the world. It sat on the centre of free trade routes and on the mouth of the Caister River. And it literally sat there as, as the Caister River reached the Aegean Sea. So it was one of the most famous harbours where ships would bring their commerce in and the commerce would go down the main um, high street and go across all of Asia Minor into Jerusalem and, and Israel and beyond. It was a great commercial centre. For a long time, it was the commercial capital of Asia. The Roman writer called, a Roman writer called it the light of Asia. While Strabo, the ancient geographer, called Ephesus the market of Asia. It was the place, it was the hub. Everything came into Ephesus and everything went out of Ephesus. It was an important hub in the ancient world. And it was a free city. There weren't very many free cities under the Roman Empire. But a free city was a city that Romans, Romans declared could rule itself. It was self-governing. It would never be inhabited by a Roman garrison. It had the privilege that Rome trusted it. It was a free city. That's very rare. It was a size city. A size cities were cities in which district they would hold courts and assize judges who would go around the whole region on behalf of Rome, the whole region of Asia Minor. They would hold court in this city. It was an important centre of justice. And it was a game centre. It was so privileged it had its own stadium, its own stadium, and held annual games. And people would gather throughout that area, to, to support the games. And the stadium, which you can still see today, could hold up to 25,000 people. Ephesus was a great city. It was also a great and famed religious centre. Because in Ephesus, there was a famous temple. And we read about it in Acts Gospel, where Paul is, has, has, has conflict with the, those who the silversmiths who produce figurines of Diana of the Ephesians. That's for Latin version, if you read the King James Version. Literally, it's Artemis of the Ephesians. And the goddess Artemis was a very famous ancient cult that even predated the Greeks. And this temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It had 120 columns. 120 columns. That's bigger than the Pantheon in Athens. It was a huge temple. And every one of those columns had been given to the temple by a king. 34 of them were richly inlaid with ivory and gold. It was a famous place of worship. And it was also famous for its superstition. All the travellers used to come in, used to ask people to pick up amulets and, and letters, and they were called Ephesian letters. And an Ephesian letter was, was basically an amulet or a, or a charm that you would be, be given and was meant to have magical powers that could heal people from sicknesses and disease. So it was a place famous for its superstition. And also, sadly, it was a place famous for its immorality. The cult of Diana, or Artemis of the Ephesians, was a cult that had, was served by a, a massive army of shrine prostitutes, sex workers, who would raise money for the cult by having sex in the name of, of uh, um, Artemis, because Artemis was a fertility goddess. And these sex workers would charge money, and people would flock into the temple to have sex with these shrine prostitutes. And not only that, the temple itself was a place of sanctuary. 
and was famous for if you were a criminal or a murderer, you could go to this sanctuary and you couldn't be arrested. And so criminals flocked there and Ephesus, Ephesus became a very dark place. So much so that the famous Greek philosopher, Heraclitus, who was known as the weeping philosopher, when his disciples asked why he weeps so much, he said no one could live in Ephesus without weeping at its immorality. Ephesus was a dark place. And it was because Ephesus was a dark place that Christianity came to Ephesus. The Christians saw the need in Ephesus. The poor on his second missionary journey, he decides to stay over there shortly and leave a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, to lead the work there. And then he comes back later on and he spends nearly three years working in Ephesus. And then when he leaves, he leaves Timothy to be the first bishop of Ephesus. You can read about this in 1 Timothy 3 and you read about it in Acts 18 and 19. And finally, it's Ephesus to which the aged Apostle John goes to when he's freed from his exile and comes back from the Isle of Patmos. And he, the tradition has it he dies in Ephesus. He needs to be brought into the, 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 the church on a pallet. And in his weakened state in his 80s, and very rarely for men to live in their 80s in that day and age, but in his 80s, he, 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 tradition says he used to tell the church, love each other, love each other. This city, this church was famous because it's got some of the great Christian names of the ancient or the early church associated with it. Ephesus was an important place, and that's the reason why it's first on the list. When Jesus speaks to this uh, church, he speaks first to Ephesus. And what does he give it first of all? He gives this church in his letter a spectacular commendation. A spectacular commendation. He praised his early church. We read in verse 2, he praised it for being hardworking. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. And the word there, kopos, for hard work, is literally hard graft. It's when you roll your sleeves up and every muscle and sinew is involved in the labor. It's a picture of someone on a building site carrying bricks up and down the ladders digging holes, layering cement. It is hard graft. And Jesus says to this church, I know you've graft hard for me. I know you've worked hard for me. It begins with this wonderful commendation. And then he says something which is quite unusual and not really very key, for, not really in, in, in tune with the 21st century society. He says, he says but he, he praised them for being intolerant. He praised the church for being intolerant. Now, we live in a society that believes that tolerance is the greatest, greatest virtue ever. You cannot judge another person. You cannot say that conduct, that behavior is wrong. That is intolerance. That's the biggest sin in the 21st century. Of course, we don't quite realize that actually people who talk about you must never be intolerant are themselves being intolerant because, you know, if you, they, they can't tolerate intolerance. And that's a failure of tolerance. It becomes contradictory. But Jesus is praising the church for being intolerant. Why? Because Christians who want to walk in the light cannot tolerate darkness. As a parent, you will never tolerate in your home things that could damage and harm your children. And if you do tolerate that, you become a bad parent. 
You don't let the children play with electricity. You don't let the children go near the stove when there's boiling hot water. You are intolerant of that boiling water and that hot stove because that boiling water could scar your children for life. Intolerance is not necessarily a bad thing. Intolerance, if it's done wisely, is done to protect people and protect situations. You are intolerant of the traffic. You don't simply let your child wander out into the road. I was terrible as a kid. I was always used to go wandering, so my mum kept me on a lead until I was about four or five years old. I was so embarrassed about it. But I'd go wandering off. I was interested in the world. I was always an explorer. And the only way she could keep me close was to have me on this lead. My mum was intolerant of my wandering because my wandering could hurt me, could even kill me. And Jesus said, I know you cannot tolerate wicked people, but you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. People don't, don't suck in that lie of the world, but intolerance is the greatest virtue, because it is not. Because there's some things we should not be tolerant of, and sin is one of them. Because sin kills people. It even killed the Son of God, who came to die for our sins and for the darkness in our lives. We must never tolerate evil and wickedness. And then Jesus said in verse 3, he says, You have persevered, have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. He commends them, because when Christians make a stand, when they put their head above the parapet, what happens is you get attacked. When you stand up against darkness, darkness will come at you. One of the best ways to realize whether we're having any impact in our world, in our life, is to ask yourself, are you being attacked by the devil? Because if you're not being attacked by the devil, perhaps you're not a threat to him. Perhaps you're not doing enough. Perhaps you're too complacent. Having served in the military for 25 years, I can tell you, in the military you do not attack targets that aren't a threat to you. You only attack targets that actually present an issue in your line that are stopping you doing your mission. And Satan's the same. He's very happy with inactive Christians because they don't bother him. He's not going to bother them. And sometimes when we come under attack, it's because we are working against the darkness in the world. And Jesus commends the Ephesian Christians not simply because they endured hardship, but endured hardship in his name. This was persecution and suffering because they're working in the name of Jesus Christ. So there's this spectacular commendation in this letter, but then he moves beyond it. And secondly, we see a sad condemnation. A sad condemnation. Jesus continues in his letter. He says in verse 4, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You have forsaken the love you had at first. In all their hard work and endurance, something had got lost. Something significant, something critical to the church's survival. They had lost their first love. The church members had begun to do things simply because they'd always done it. It wasn't motivated by a love for the Lord. It was motivated by routine. By familiarity. What had begun as a labour of love had begun, become a routine expression of role, not of devotion. 
Familiarity had done its corrosive work and bred contempt. And how easy it is, is to us in our, in our ministries in church for these to become simply something we do because we've always done it. And we don't do it because we really want to glorify God and because we love the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. We do things for him, but perhaps don't like to be around him. A good litmus test of your faith is how much do you long to be in the presence of Jesus every day? How much do you long to get into your word? To pick up your Bible and to read your Bible every day and soak yourself in the teaching of this book? How often do you want to worship and sing songs of praise and focus your attention upon the Lord? How often? Because your faith is not measured by the number of times you come into church or by what you do in the church and for how long and, and for how many years you've been doing a ministry. The litmus test of faith and relationship is always in how bright the fire burns in your heart for Jesus. How do you love the Lord Jesus? Is that love still there? Or is it perhaps a flicker or a wick that's merely, merely moldering? Jesus says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. People, this is not a new message to the Bible. This is a message that the prophets brought to the Old Testament church, to the Hebrew people. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, God says to him in Jeremiah 2 and verse 2, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, for a land yet not sown. The prophet is to declare that the people had forgotten that love. It had become cold. Routine had taken over. Love was being neglected. And people, God doesn't want our routine. He wants our hearts. He wants you to love from your heart and not from muscle memory. Jesus tells us in verse 4, Their time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. We cannot pretend with God because God sees our hearts. If we pretend we're only fooling ourselves, we can't fool him. And he wants us to remember our first love. That light of grace when we first realize we're forgiven. When we first realize that God loves me. When we first realize that actually I'm saved not because I'm me, but because God loves me and God has died for me and God has saved me. You see, the problem is, is when we let our first love go, we become stale and crusty. And stale and crusty Christians is not a good place to be. How attractive is that? Would you go into a bakery and find something stale and moldy and think, yeah, fancy that for lunch? Fancy a bit of mold, a bit of penicillin? People, God wants our love and our devotion. Jesus said that's the hallmark of who we are as Christians. John 14, by this everyone will know you, my disciples. If you love one another, that love, that Christian love, that, that center love is 
demonstrable, shows other people that we are Christians, defines us. And these Christians have allowed their love to call. And what's quite, you know, Jesus is quite, quite direct here. He says, I hold this against you. The reason he holds it against you is because the word loss is actually not a brilliant translation here in the Greek, in the NIV. The actual word in the Greek doesn't just say lost. It's far stronger than lost. The word apachras means abandoned. It means deserted. It means there's a deliberateness to what's happened. It's not like you've mislaid your love. I'm always losing my phone. I've got a great device now. I've got an iWatch. And my watch, I can go onto my iWatch and press a button. And my, my, my phone, wherever it is in the house, will ping. And it's great because I'm always losing my watch. My watch is black and a black case. I'm always putting it down. And I put it down and the work surface is black as well. And I forget where it is. So I go around the house and it annoys Fiona because I press the button on my phone. And my phone pings wherever it is. And it's great. But it's not like that. It's not like you've mislaid it, like you've mislaid your spectacles. The word here in the Greek means you've abandoned it. You've given it up. It's rather like when we get to that stage of that crusty old suit or a crusty old dress in the wardrobe, the cupboard, and we take it out and we take it down to a charity shop and we leave it. We desert it. We abandon it. It is deliberate. That's what Jesus is saying in this passage. Perhaps something's happened in our lives. Perhaps we face some adversity, some terrible situation. And we prayed and God didn't answer the prayer the way we wanted it to be answered. And we decided, therefore, to abandon it. Perhaps we're tired. We've been Christians for years. We've given so much time and love and, and yet Jesus hasn't yet come. And we're getting tired and worn out and we're thinking, actually, I'm going to go a different way now. And we abandon it. We lay our faith aside. Some writers, commentators on this passage suggest because Paul first went to Ephesus in AD 52, he suggests that when, when John is writing here, it's about 40 years later. And that at that time, it was second generation Christians that were inhabiting the church. And they didn't share the faith of their parents and the faith of their grandparents. And those of you who are listening to this, you have Christian parents, you cannot rest on your parents' laurels or your grandparents' laurels. It requires a personal commitment from you. Without that, the light does not burn. They've forgotten their first love. And finally, we see in this passage a serious consequence, a serious consequence. And Jesus says three things to the church. He says this, he says, consider, in verse 5, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. The first thing Jesus says is this, remember. Remember. Power of memory is really, really important. He says, remember, and the word here in, in, in the Greek is uh, a is, is a present imperative, which means it means not just simply remember once, it means to keep on remembering, to hold in your mind, remember, and he's telling us to think back to what it was like when you first became a believer, when you first gave your heart to Jesus. How were you? Think back to that time there was a rumbling in your heart when you couldn't long, you longed to get into your word, when you longed to pray, when you longed to worship. Think back to those times and think how far you've moved on. Not upwards, but downwards. You've fallen. Think back, he says. Consider. 
William Cowper, and we'll be singing this hymn in a few minutes, writes about this in his classic hymn, Over a Closer Walk with God. And in one, in one of the verses, he writes this, Where is the blessedness I knew when I first saw the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his word? Cowper is saying, I long for that time. I long for the time I first gave my heart to Christ and that fire was a raging in my heart. And Jesus is saying, remember that and get back to that. Don't put up with a little flicker of light that you simply reward every Sunday or every now and again. Memory is a powerful thing. Remember, he says. But don't just remember, act. He says in verse 5, repent. And that literally means to get on, to change your direction, to move in this new direction towards your memory of the way you were when you first came to know the Lord Jesus. And then he says in verse 5, he says, remember, repent, and lastly, return. He says, repent and do the things you did at first. Do the things you do, did at first. Return to that time and whatever you did when you first became a Christian, do that to sustain your faith. The times you spent in prayer. You see, no relationship can last without regular connection. And if we abandon the Lord and become suckered in by our smartphones, suckered in by our computers, by our games, suckered in by the TV, suckered in by our hobbies and by our novels and by our books, suckered in by all these distractions that we neglect the Lord Jesus, we aren't simply losing him, we are abandoning him. And no wonder our faith dies. And that light becomes extinguished. Because Jesus warns us here that failure will result in the removal of the church's lampstand. He says, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. And that applies on two levels. The first level is the level of the church. The churches can lose their lampstands. And we've got churches around this country that are closed. When Fiona and I were studying in Glasgow Bible College, we lived in Paisley. And Paisley had a great revival during the early 19th century. And it's full of churches. Would you know now, in the 21st century, most of those churches are Chinese's, and carpet shops, antique warehouses. Very few of the churches from the revival are actually churches in 2021. They lost their lampstands. And Jesus said, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. And you know, the great glory of Jesus is he always keeps his promises. But when he promises something like this, he will keep that too. You know, today, Ephesus is no longer a great harbour. In fact, it's nothing but an ancient ruin. You saw pictures of it earlier on. The city that was once the jewel of Asia Minor, that sat right on the edge of the Aegean Sea, is now six miles inland. There's six miles of scrubland between Ephesus and the famous colonnade leading to the stadia, as you see there in that photograph. Six miles from the point that the city touched the sea to where the sea now is. Why? Because the people of Ephesus stopped bothering dealing with the silt that was coming down the river Caister. 
And every year they had to spend lots of money to keep the silt out of the harbour because with the silt in the harbour, the ships could not dock in the harbour. And because they gave up clearing out the rubbish in the harbour, eventually that harbour silted up. And it stopped being a commercial centre because the boats couldn't get to Ephesus. And now in 2021, there's six miles of scrubland between Ephesus and the Aegean Sea. It became a ruin because they stopped making the effort. And you know what? That church in Ephesus doesn't exist anymore. In 2021, there isn't a church in Ephesus. That famous church where Paul went to, where Priscilla and where um, I forget the names of Priscilla, Priscilla and Aphila were part of. That famous church where Timothy was a bishop. That famous church where where. Um, where uh, John the Apostle died, where it traditionally even holds that Mary was taken to Ephesus and was buried in Ephesus. This famous city, this famous church, is no longer there because the lampstand was removed. And people, we must keep on clearing out our lives from the rubbish, getting rid of that silt, because if the silt seals up our harbour, then we can no longer become a place of activity in the kingdom of God. And Jesus will come and remove that lampstand. Jesus says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All of us have ears, don't we? God has given us not one, but two. But are we listening? Jesus says, the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Literally, the one who is victorious is the one who conquers, the one who overcomes. You know, we forget that when we race and we're in the run for the Lord Jesus, and we're in that great race, it's not about how you start. It's always about how you finish. If you don't go across that finishing line, you won't conquer. If you don't go across that finishing line, you haven't won. And there's many people out there that made a commitment for Jesus Christ many years ago and then gave up. They abandoned that love. And they won't be victorious because they're, they're nowhere. It's only those that go across the finishing line. People, let me encourage you. Jesus says, remember that lost love. Remember that love you once had for the Lord Jesus. Rekindle it. Think about it. Strive to get back to it. Clear out the rubbish in the harbour. Or you'll become high and dry like Ephesus. And like Ephesus, you'll lose your lampstand. Jesus says, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God.